Welcome to episode 484 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, family, or pets. And uh, joining me for the, the news roundup today, Jane Bambauer, who teaches law at the University of Florida and is chair of the National AI Advisory Committee, the subcommittee on law enforcement. So uh, Jane, welcome. And Paul Stephen, uh, who is a uh, professor of law at University of Virginia and a former counselor at the State Department in international law and special counsel for the Defense Department. Paul, great to have you. Thank you for having me, Stuart. All right. And Maury Schenk, a uh, London-based lawyer and technologist and longtime, boy, it must be 30 years, 30 friend. Years. It's, it's a long time anyway. Uh, and Maury doesn't want to be reminded of it. But Maury, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, a lot of law to talk about, especially early. So you may have to hit advance a few times if you're tired of the law. But I thought the case out of Montana, where the federal court was asked to enjoin Montana's law banning TikTok, the toughest law in the country, I think, produced some, you know, it was an okay opinion. And it was, it certainly canvassed all of the constitutional objections to the ban and embraced most of them, didn't it, Paul? I think all of them, Stuart, as far as I know. <laughs> I mean, it was one victory for the plaintiffs uh, after another. I know the Commonwealth of Virginia has a ban on the use of state hardware to access TikTok uh, applicable to employees and students. But this one was a comprehensive ban in the state of Montana. And there are a number of reasons to think that's problematic. A couple of First Amendment grounds, one focused on the users, which I am a little puzzled by, the idea that people have a First Amendment right to access of a particular platform. I'm puzzled as to why that's a First Amendment issue. On the other hand, TikTok's position that they have a right to run their platform and, and curate their platform the way they want is solid, particularly if they are conceding that they're not covered by 230 when they do so. There were also a number of preemption claims that the court upheld. They are conceding that? I didn't think so. I thought no, they no, were saying I, I, what I, publishers I, I, do. The conditional. They didn't concede it, but okay. I, I think the argument requires that concession. Uh, that could be, uh, yeah. How can you claim curatorial privilege if you don't admit you're doing something outside of 230? But of course, I could be wrong about 230. I think their theory is... This is what publishers do. They curate stuff. They decide whether your letter to the editor is going to be published or not, whether your op-ed is going to be published or not. So when when they are told that they can only uh, get the benefit of the uh, 230 immunity if they're being held liable for being a uh, publisher, they say, well, then this this is exactly what it means to be held liable as a publisher when we're being held liable for what we curate. So I think they want it both ways. Yeah, I do, too. And, and I, I understand I, I'm being a little bit provocative here because I understand that uh, the intuition that 230 is about being a common carrier does not extend to editing is, I think, defensible and even desirable. But it's certainly not what the lower courts have said. It is my prediction of what the Supreme Court will say when the right case comes up to them. But yeah. the preemption cases are interesting. You don't see a lot of Schoenig preemption anymore. That's to say that foreign affairs is a category is beyond the reach of the states. That would put the UCC unconstitutional because a lot of uh, sale of goods transactions are international. And in the restatement, we said we didn't think Schoenig was really good law anymore. But here we have a court saying that. They also, uh, they argue Garamendi, which I think is sounder, uh, although I'm not a big fan of Garamendi. I think the case probably is in four corners in Garamendi. They also talk... Uh, the judge talked about the Defense Production Act and IEPA. I think the IEPA claim is kind of strange because IEPA has a First Amendment carve out. That's why uh, the Trump administration couldn't get to TikTok using IEPA. And, and it's a, at least kind of a, a double bank shot that say because the federal statute has a carve out that it preempts state things to do the same. I think, you know, the argument would be, this is federal policy. We will go this far and no further. And then for Montana to say, we will go much further is implicitly 
creating tension with the federal policy, and it's the, supposed to be the federal government that's creating foreign affairs policy. So I, th- that, I think, is the theory. I, whether that's a good theory, uh, I'm, I'm less sure. But I, I, it's, it's coherent. Yeah, I think that all preemption theories start with the idea that foreign affairs, especially reserved for the national government, are problematic because the penetration of international affairs by regular normal activity that's regulated by state law, uh, whether it's family law or commercial law or, or the law of contracts with respect to bonds, make those kind of preemption arguments, in my view, problematic. This is why you think Schoenig is, is bad I law. Schoenig is not. Yeah, you better explain for the audience what, what yeah, Schoenig so does. Schoenig involved a inheritance law where uh, states at the time required reciprocity so that foreign states that identified as socialists, which is to say Soviet camp back in the 60s, and therefore confiscated inheritances that a state intestacy statute would not apply when a foreign state would confiscate the intestacy interest. And Douglas wrote a characteristically late-era Douglas opinion that didn't say much, but explained even less and seemed to indicate that anything touching on foreign affairs was preempted. He just got lazy, so lazy at the end. He just wasn't worrying about how what he said might apply to the next case. So if the principle is the states can't get into the Cold War, then that covers the TikTok ban. But uh, I just question whether we can live with that principle in the contemporary world. And they did, they did the Dormant Commerce Clause, too. And I, I kind of read that opinion as saying, uh, hey, you know, the Dormant Commerce Clause, it's weighing and it could go either way. Pretty much every case could go either way. And I know which way I want this to go. So here it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this issue is different from the Dormant Commerce Clause in the net choice cases before the Supreme Court, although the Dormant Commerce Clause issue is not before the court. Let me just stop. The Dormant Commerce Clause is the idea that even without any congressional action, the fact that that the Congress has authority over interstate commerce and international commerce means that some things are just unconstitutional without just because the court says so. That the, the federal free market, the federal common market, if you will, is protected from the states unless Congress gives a free pass. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to those arguments in general. I do think here when we're talking about a particular firm as opposed to regulating its activities, it's simply banning them and banning them on a arguable public safety argument having to do with not believing the assurances that the PRC has no access to the data they collect. You know, I I think it's at least distinguishable from the cases regulating Facebook and Twitter and the like, the net choice cases that are before the court. But the court isn't going to address dormant commerce clause in those cases. So this is, again, an issue for down the road, I think. Yeah. So some of the what the judge did was say, I don't think you've given me any evidence, for example, of benefits to uh, domestic commerce. So a lot of this will depend on the uh, the trial, although I, I think it's quite clear that the judge has made up his mind that this is not going to survive. Do you think there is any prospect after an opinion like this that there is a respectable opinion to be written upholding a ban? Upholding a ban? I think it t- turns on how net choice comes out. Okay. Yes. All right. Very good. All right. So... That's one law-heavy decision, uh, and it's bad news for people who want to ban TikTok. The other is the FTC's fight with Meta over kids' privacy. Um, Jane, I I characterize this as sort of a two-stage debate or conflict. Can you give us a feel for what the two stages are? And it's pretty clear the uh, Meta lost the first stage, uh, but they just and kind of doubled the stakes and went back in. At least that's how it looks to me. Yeah. Okay, so this all starts with a 2012 consent decree that Facebook and Google and every major tech company, you know, in that era, every tech company quickly caved to to FTC regulatory action, and they all entered these consent decrees that lasted 20 years, and that basically required these companies to agree to a kind of notice and consent, very FIPSy set of procedures, and way of doing business. 
And so it was a way, you know, without any sort of federal regulation that many of our biggest companies were still having under some, I think people would debate whether, how, how strong or flimsy these promises were, but they would, they would be under self-executed promises to provide good information and get the consent of, of their customers. So fast forward to 2019, the FTC accused Facebook of violating its order uh, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. If you actually look at that, I mean, their argument for how Facebook broke the original agreement is probably different and weaker than from what me most people would think, because in the public media, we were focused on how all these, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people's data was being collected indirectly because something had a friend who had filled out a survey with Cambridge Analytica, but none of that actually really violated the clear requirements of the order. And so the violation was based on the kind of proper consenting procedures of the people who actually took the surveys, Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, so Facebook was basically hit hard because they, you know, they were down. It was easy to kick them, and they were being blamed for the faults for failing to enforce their rules on a third party on whom they'd imposed the, the rules, but they hadn't caught them violating them. That's right, and you know, by the way, the irony is that today under EU's Digital Marketplace Act, it's not clear. It's possible that Facebook would be required to do exactly what at the time of Cambridge Analytica they were doing, that there's this tension between wanting data, wanting personal data to be easy to transfer to another company versus the privacy concern of wanting data to be hard to transfer. And this has not really been worked out yet. And so, you know, let's stay tuned. Yeah. So in any case, yeah. So in 2020, finally, the FTC did, they stipulated an order they moved for a stipulated order requiring Facebook to pay $5 billion, the biggest FTC fine uh, in history, and they reopened that original 2012 proceeding. And this is where things get interesting because then they attached this exhibit A or attachment A or something. Yeah, attachment A that added all these new requirements. And so it limited Facebook's collection of data from minors, from, from kids under 16. It did a couple other things though too. Facebook can't roll out new products or services until they complete their privacy program and not not clear to me how close they are to doing that. And then uh, it extended the privacy requirements to face, use of facial recognition. And so Facebook now Meta is arguing like, okay, well, that attachment goes well beyond, it has nothing to do with what the 2020, you know, the 2019, 2020 Cambridge Analytica issue was about. So it's out of scope and this court, this court that is overseeing this settlement order should invalidate it. And by the way, we're also including a constitutional challenge to the FTC. <laughs> the court basically decided it doesn't have jurisdiction because it doesn't have jurisdiction over the original 2012 negotiated settlement. And at first I kind of thought the court was making sense. They said, look, you know, if the FTC went ahead and enforced something against them based on this attachment A with these new requirements, Meta would have to just bring their own, you know, that, that would be a, a, a breach of the new agreement. And as such, Meta would have to enforce it through a new proceeding. And so all of that made sense to me until at the very end, the court acknowledged, actually, we did approve attachment A <laughs> as part of the settlement or order. And then it said, but the court approved attachment A, I'm quoting here, insofar as it needed to satisfy itself of the settlement's overall fairness. And so that's the analysis. And I don't know enough, maybe others here know more about the, the sort of procedure or jurisdiction issue than I do, but it seems that by approving the substance of attachment A, it, it doesn't seem wrong for Facebook to go to that court. But in any case, Almost all of the issues were disposed of on, on, on this jurisdiction grounds. And so then two days later, Meta filed for declaratory relief, challenging the constitutional, constitutionality of the FTC in its privacy settlement decree practices and with, with ramifications that will in, include, I think, the FTCs. Which made sense. I mean, basically, Meta was saying, you can't, you can't do this because it, you're changing the attachment, the rules in the attachment. And the court said, sorry, the attachment really isn't part of the rules that I approved. So it's right. up to the FTC what they want to do. 
And when the FTC said, well, we'll just ask ourselves whether it's a good idea to change this, which is how their process works. Meta said, well, you can't be the judge in your own case that way. That's unconstitutional. At least that's how I read it. The the court is saying it's not actually looking at the, the substance of the attachment to decide on fairness. It's just saying it's fair for the FTC, I guess, to in theory add something and also, of course, impose this fine. So, uh, Paul, my impression is that, in fact, a challenge to the way the FTC judges its own cases, a constitutional challenge, and maybe even a challenge to the whole structure of the FTC with the way its uh, commissioners are chosen, is one that has a decent chance of prevailing in this court. So, Stuart, I don't know whether I know the new suit was filed on Wednesday. I don't know whether it was filed before or after the oral argument in Jarkesi. But Jarkesi, uh, which is a Supreme Court case involving SEC procedures, has put some blood on the water here. Uh, I've tried to be invincibly ignorant of all administrative procedure for the last 45 years. <laughs> and if Jarkesi comes down the right way, I'll be validated because it'll all be thrown out. Uh, the FTC, at least arguably, will be constrained going forward to uh, proceed only by filing in federal court in the first instance, not having any independent administrative proceedings. That's not the inevitable conclusion of Jarkesi, uh, but that's the way it might lean. Yeah, uh, and and so we're we're witnessing a possible revolution in the federal administrative procedure that will catch up a lot more than just the FTC. And uh, being invincibly ignorant of that body of law, I, I can only say, watch that space. So the argument basically revealed a lot of identity of, of thought between what you could call the social conservative justices and the economic conservative justices who between them have six votes. Do you, do you think that it's going to be that bad for current administrative law? Well, we saw a 3-3-3 split. Okay. With uh, three justices in support of the status quo. And by the way, as a small C conservative, that's my position. Mm-hmm. The, you have three sort of radical challenges to the administrative estate, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. And the other three, I think, are just dancing around, and it's not clear. what Maybe they will end up honoring Justice O'Connor, memorializing her by you know, not committing to any strong position and just dancing around the issue. But they may end up leaning in the direction of the radical three. I think it's genuinely unpredictable and terribly interesting. It's a little like Second Amendment law. The radical position has clarity and some basic grounding in the Constitution. And the I would disagree about the basic grounding part, but go ahead. Okay. The same thing is happening here. The the let's keep things the way they've been for a hundred years crowd is struggling to figure out how you square that with current views of how the executive authority was divvied out in the constitution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with saying that it's an evolving process and we shouldn't compare George Washington and Joe Biden. Yeah. You know, that means I don't have very good capital C conservative credentials. Oh, well, none of us do these days because you can't tell what's a conservative from day to day. Okay, Maury, there's this effort to make AI secure by design. The UK took the pen, if I read it right, and CISA was a big player from the US. And then they got, you know, almost 20 countries to, to jump on without any particular institutional grounding for the countries that got on board. But it's it's meant to say, hey, we're taking AI security very seriously, and here's our principles for how to do security by design. What do you think? Well, I agree with the framing, you know, and so there's a lot of talk about AI regulation for safety these days around the EU AI Act in particular, but in some other countries. It's rather messy. It's not exactly clear where it's going, and these problems can't all be solved by regulation. So you do need industry efforts to start, whether or not you believe in regulation. And this is this paper is very high level. It's mostly principles that you would expect in any cybersecurity paper. They do say AI is different, mainly focusing on adversarial machine learning, which and its effects. But it's a pretty narrow distinction. And then it's other, you know, 
motherhood and apple pie stuff for cybersecurity, like know your threats, make sure your people know what they're doing, secure the supply chain. So I think it's a good step in the right direction. And if they can get a group of national cybersecurity authorities like this to pay attention and start cooperating on more detailed procedures as AI risks become clear, I think it's a good thing. So I, I'm going to challenge that because I think I agree with you completely that this is a, a white bread security code, 20 uh, sets of rules that everybody can agree you ought to do that for security to design security. But the AI security problem is not that, at least uh, we haven't demonstrated that we have a big AI security problem. I'm prepared to believe we do have a security problem just as we have one for all other forms of computation. But the security problem that everybody has been focused on up to now is not security for the user, but security from the user. How can we prevent the users from doing bad things with this technology that we're about to hand to them? And that's never been the core of security concerns. There's some of that because when you run an enterprise, you're trying to make sure your users don't subvert your own security. But I think that They've, they've kind of made a category here in saying security for AI is trying to make sure that people don't subvert the AI to hurt the user. This is all about controlling or is likely to be in the long run all about controlling the user. Paul, you've got thoughts on this? Well, I, one thing I found interesting and uh, since it aligns with my view, I think very good about this is that it distinguishes between the capacity of the AI itself and reverse engineering to identify and uh, docs, if you will, data elements. And, and that's sort of my big thing right now. That you mean pulling basically private data out of the, exactly. um, the system. You know, we saw a story that I didn't particularly suggest we cover that says if you instruct the AI to write the word poem over and over and over and over again, eventually it gets bored with that and starts giving you private people's data. Yeah, so I think in general, when we're thinking about big data, which is an essential component of AI, we need to distinguish what big data can do and how it should be regulated from uh, the interests of the elements of information inside big data. So I, I embrace the distinction drawn here. I mean, the rest of it, it's interesting who is and who is not on board. I mean, it's interesting that Nigeria and Chile are. It's a good flanking movement if you are hostile to the EU's legislation on AI, I, I think using this is a much more productive way to go, and maybe it will end up being a diversion from the EU legislation. But notice that the principal adversaries that we see that can be sponsors of dangerous things, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, you know, are nowhere near any of this. Yeah, so That's a big security problem that this does not address. But if you're breaking up the EU, getting a bunch of countries, I think, Germany, Italy, Czech Republic, Estonia, Poland, all of those are EU countries. And now they've signed on to this, which kind of fractures the notion that there's a unified EU AI position. Yes. God bless them for I'd, that. I'd also like to challenge your framing, Stuart, that it's all about protection from the user. I think that there are a lot. I think the AI safety situation is a bit of a mess. It's conflating like 12, 15 different threats that could be associated with AI, probably a lot more than that. And some of them are about protection of the user. I mean, we've been talking for years about bias, so ethical AI, yeah. which is about protection of the user. And I think cybersecurity is one important piece of it. This is aimed at cybersecurity. We're going to have to solve all of those problems. So I, I guess I think of the user as, is, when you're talking about bias, as the as the employer who's using the AI and who's accused of bias, the person who's being hired is not really a user of the AI. But we'll come back to this because I want to talk about the California privacy law. But first, Amori, let's talk at least a little about instead of law, just uh, where AI is going. Because I'm really interested that Meta is doubling down on the idea that open sourcing and sharing its AI technology and letting lots of people develop stuff on top of it is fine. It's not going to hurt their business. It's not going to hurt them. It's not bad for the world. That is pretty far from where most people are. And I think it's, a, it's as big a divide in the 
AI community as the one that split up OpenAI for, uh, you know, about 48 hours. Yeah, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is an opportunist. And, you know, he's been that all his career. He doesn't, he espouses principle, but he doesn't operate based upon principle. Although there is a principle here that that open source is good, you know, and that open source contributes to the development of the positive side of AI. So I think, there are arguments on both sides of this question. You're right. There are increased risks from making these tools available to everybody. I think the reason why Facebook has come and Meta has come down on that side is because Zuckerberg sees it as a good chance to poke Meta, to poke uh, Microsoft slash OpenAI and Amazon and Apple, et cetera. And Google too. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you on that. And plus all those other companies, at least certainly Google and Microsoft, they know exactly what they want to do with AI today. And they're doing it, right? They're just dumping it into all their products to say, hey, look, at we've got tail fins on our, on our cars. And they, they may well make their products much more competitive. It's hard to see how you make social media a more productive product by using AI, by saying to people, ah, you can have AI in, in, built into your system. So Facebook has no immediate payoff. They have to, they're going to have to get other people to find ways that their AI is commercially valuable. And so putting it out and letting lots of people poke at it and try things is probably in their commercial interest. Yeah, I agree completely. And Facebook has built up Facebook AI Research, FAIR, is a tremendously strong AI research organization. And in this battle between open and closed source, for them to be the only big company that stakes out the open source position also is a great commercial place to be. And so I, I think this is a pure commercial decision and probably a good one for them. All right. Okay. And now I guess I should say, You've been doing more on AI than I actually realized. You're actually assembling a, a set of resources on AI. Yeah, I've been doing a ton of stuff on AI safety. I'd link to a few efforts. And I just, because of all of these things I'm working on, I just, through one of my companies, launched a website called SciHub, S-A-I-Hub.info, Safe and Responsible AI Information Hub. It's really new. It took me like a week to put it together and I decide to go ahead, but I'm I'm gonna take a run at it. So anybody wants to look it up and offer suggestions, I'm really open to cooperation. Terrific, terrific. Okay, so I promised that, that I wanted to talk about the AI rules that came out of California's privacy agency. And Jane, I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about this after I say that it looks to me as though these AI rules might well be the craziest, most toxic laws of 2023, essentially BIPA for AI, uh, the Biometric Identification Protection Privacy Act, which has turned out to be a nightmare for everybody who uses anything that identifies people. And this is going to be a nightmare for almost any conceivable value that you can get out of computing in making business decisions. Yeah, this this is worse than BIPA, I think, partly because AI could be valuable in so many different ways, but many more ways than, than biometrics. But yeah, so, okay, so first of all, consumers have a right to opt out of, according to these draft regulations, consumers have a right to opt out of business use of automated decision-making technology. And that is, they use a very capacious definition. It includes, for example, monitoring employees, it would seem to include things like even making loan loan decisions. Yeah. Let me read what they say is AI. I'll drop out some of the words, but you can assemble these words easily out of their regulatory definition. It is any process derived from statistics or data processing that processes personal information and uses computation in part to make decisions or to facilitate human decision-making. So if a decision-maker looks at a spreadsheet, that spreadsheet is artificial intelligence under this definition. Yeah, and I think there's something, there's some verbiage that suggests it's limited to some, something like rights impacting, but 
that gets, it's not possible for that to actually have much meaning because they make clear that behavioral advertising is a yeah. um, automated decision-making system that is, is regulated. So even the decision about what ads to serve is enough to impact whatever kind of rights they're thinking of. So also, so, so the opting out, I think is going to cause a lot of problems, strategic behavior and whatnot, but maybe even worse are the paperwork headaches because yeah. Um, because you can opt out after you've already agreed, you know, after you've already agreed. And so then they have to cease the processing and pull the data from all of their downstream processors who are contracted with them. There's also a right of access and particularized information about, about how they're using your data, which I imagine might require some automated decision-making right. processes to even comply with it, which is kind of, you end up in cycles of, of transparency headaches. Um, I got stuck on the first step that said, you have to give notice of every one of your AI processing systems and uh, you know how it's used and whether it's been evaluated for validity and fairness. That notice by itself is going to get lots and lots of people sued. If they don't include it, they're going to get sued for not including it. True. And if they explain how they've evaluated it for fairness, people are going to say, well, that, that wasn't good enough. And, and they're going to sue over that. So then, you know, my mind went to, well, what are the exceptions? Because if there are these huge categories of exceptions and some of them are written in a more standards rather than rule-like way, well, then maybe this winds up being something that's kind of more symbolic but not so. The exceptions are pretty narrow, fraud detection and security, physical safety. And then if the company can prove that the request, that the service that they're trying to you know, use the automated processing for has no reasonable alternative, then maybe it's an exception. But the default assumption is that there is a reasonable alternative. And so the, the, you know, the stakes are high. The presumption is strongly against claiming to, to be an exception. And so I'm still left not knowing, for example, whether you can use credit scores, if, you know, just normal FICO credit scores yeah. in um, California for this. And then there's a big sleeper issue though, which is that the regs claim that you have to require an opt-out for even the processing of personal information to train machine learning. So that means that and, and by the way, they've also sort of set things up so that there can be kind of third parties that organize and demand opt out. So it, it kind of reduces the friction or the, you know, it, it reduces the costs of, of individual consumers going to every company that they interact with to demand opt out. And so that's really, I mean, that's just the end of useful AI, as far as I'm concerned. If, if you can opt out of the, the actual learning and development of the, of the, tra of the model, yeah. And, and no, no, nobody knows how to re reach those people. And I guess it's going to be just an endless litigation fest. I'm not sure how much private right of action there is here. So it may just be that the regulator is going to be swamped trying to figure this out. And instead of going after everybody, they take the FTC rule, which is you only you shoot the wounded after after they're you know on the left on the battlefield, and yeah, in, it still if, deters you know it still deters innovation you know it's not yeah. just you know the uncertainty alone is very costly. So, all right, well, so um, you know, I guess uh, Brussels effect will see your effect and call you. All right, um, then let's see. Oh yes, come <laughs> This is this is a Facebook heavy. A session, Meta rolled out ad-free and presumably profile-free service in the EU and is charging, I don't know, 10, 12 bucks a month for it. I can't believe a lot of people are going to want to buy it. And I think it reflects Meta basically saying we're writing off the EU as a market. But they're also getting complaints from people who say you, you're not allowed to charge that much because you're really charging for privacy and privacy should be, oh, less. Maury, is this just them bailing on uh, the EU so they don't, you know, they can live with a decision that says, no, that you can't charge that much, in which case they'll just say, fine, we're not going to do it. I don't think they're bailing on the EU um, and because it's a big market. 
I expected you to be a little bit more critical of these arguments that were being presented, Stuart, because I I thought that the consumer group's arguments were a bit weak. You know, Meta has provided a pretty good solution and you can argue over the price. Now, that's what they're doing, don't you think? There's, there's a whole set of jokes that end with we're just negotiating the price. And it does seem to me that that is what they're complaining about. And it is kind of hard to find a place to stand, right? Should it be eight bucks or would that be okay? And unfortunately, what I'm guessing is that the EU is going to say, oh, yeah, we'll decide whether eight bucks is the right number or not. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me Meta has proposed a solution that at least logically, legally makes some sense here. And the pricing is about what it costs to have a premium subscription to YouTube or something like that. So for a big Facebook user, you could see that they might want it. Now, I could see some big EU data protect. And and by and they've said, you're probably gathering the private information anyway, anyway other than to serve ads. But I think Meta could deal with that. I think if Meta is getting paid, they could limit their collection of private information from these people. So this is going to be an interesting battle. I think some of the EU authorities will probably still come down on them, but I, I think Meta's arguments are much stronger than they've been before. The, the problem is it runs against what has been an unspoken assumption, which is that you can't tell people you have a choice of, of a more privacy protective system and charge them more for it because that discourages them from choosing the privacy protective system. And so that no one wants to say you should just do it for free and not make any money, but they aren't going to be satisfied with anything that is less than that. Yeah. I mean, I, so the, the whole internet has been ad supported and I guess, I guess it's a question of whether the, the European data protection authorities are going to say the internet must go to untargeted ads only. And they, they could say that, but. But that's a huge difference in revenue. I mean, that is, that changes, fundamentally changes the internet. That alone. Yeah. yeah. And, and it will continue the situation where the EU is an internet wasteland in terms of not services, but in terms of companies, because big internet companies don't get built in the EU because it's so restrictive. So I've ended up to the right of you on this. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, I, I too, Stuart, I, I don't think Facebook's giving up on Europe. They're doing like, a, okay, here's what it will actually cost to give you the services that you're getting for free, right? And so you have a choice now and, you know, may, maybe it's a dollar or two overpriced, but it's hard to tell because part of what Facebook does is not only provide what users see, but also take care of child porn and all the other content moderation stuff. I mean, it's, those types of services are actually pretty, you know, burdensome on, on Facebook and, and it costs money. And, and so I just don't know, you know, how will the EU prove that, that what they're charging is overpriced? You know, what, what's, what's the logic? And I guess if I were, you know, if I were regulating in the EU, I would actually want more services to offer the free, you know, the free ad supported version and the price version, because then you can start letting them compete on price, which consumers I think are more sensitive to. And um, I don't know how they're going to actually resolve this, except just <laughs> your cynical way. <laughs> yeah. My guess is that the, the EU like privacy advocates generally don't want to see a competition between privacy protective and fee-based and privacy intrusive and ad-based services because they believe that most of us will choose the ad-based privacy intrusive system. And the whole rationale that they've been touting since at least 1993 will start to you know wobble. People will say, well, nobody wants to pay for that. So maybe we should not be demanding it as regulators. So we'll see. I, I think they just don't want to start putting a price on it because the price will be too much for most people. That's a little like the debate over global warming. Everybody's in favor of ending global warming until they get the price tag. And then suddenly people start to object. Um, I think the same thing is going to be true here. But we'll see. Okay. Two stories in the industrial policy and technology area and that I thought were sort of straws in the wind. One, uh, the U.S. government has begun 
stinging deals that involve Saudi Arabia and AI chip startups. I, I think uh, Sam Altman had a chip startup. You know, everybody wants to build chips that will enable AI because it has turned out that that is the best way to make money off of AI is to have your chip basically uh, to be NVIDIA and sell the chips that enable uh, large language models to everybody. And there's lots of folks who think they, their chips could do the same thing. And the U.S. Uh, Maury actually CFIUS said, if you've got a chip startup in the AI sphere, don't take Saudi money. Yeah. Apparently sometime in the last year, they told this Altman funded startup, Rain Neuromorphics, which was designing AIs that would operate like the human brain and not like neural networks, which aren't really that much like the human brain, although are supposedly modeled on it. And they said they had to give the money back to their Aramco funded VC investor. And I'm interested, you know, what is the policy there? I'm not sure they're worried about the Saudis. It was pointed out in the Bloomberg article that came out on it that this fund had also invested in Chinese ventures. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if this is part of the China policy, thinking that the technology might leak to China. A little hard to know. That's what I think, too, is, is that Saudi is not seen as part of the industrial policy alliance against the Saudis. You know, they're just, that's just not the, the business they're in. And strategically, that's not in their interest. So the U.S., while they, they're willing to have the Saudis funding other kinds of uh, U.S. Uh, technology, aren't willing to have something as dear to the politicians' hearts as AI controlled by a Saudi investor because they think it'll, the, the technology will leak because Saudi doesn't really have a big interest in keeping it away from China. Yeah. And China is playing the industrial policy game. They've announced that they're going to do export controls on graphite, which is critical for battery technology in particular, and something that all Western countries are dependent on China for. We're a little less than, than the, our East Asian allies. Paul, I was struck by the fact that this was, I thought, more an announcement of what they were going to do than something they'd actually done. And frankly, my first thought was, well, that's a good way to get none of the benefits and all of the downside of, of trying to control your exports to the, to, to the West. Well, uh, that could be true. I think that the Chinese strategy, uh, as we saw with the rare earths in Japan, is to do muscle flexing rather than uh, missile raids. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they like to remind their economic adversaries of their potential. And here, as I understand the article, they have instituted a licensing system, but their criteria does not bar transactions yet to any particular countries. It's just indicating that, yes, we have this capacity to deny these essential upstream components as long as you in the West don't uh, find your own sources. Isn't that the equivalent of saying to every Western customer, just in case you had any doubt, we want to remind you that we are a completely unreliable supplier. And if you don't have a second source of supply, you're going to be screwed sooner or later. So we have uh, two worlds, two conceptual frameworks for the world economy at war with each other. One is interdependence and necessary liberalism because you need trust and, and uh, you need to find the best source for components. And the other is a, a kind of uh, what some people call geoeconomics. I don't like the term, but the idea is economic power is war by other means. Uh, so neoclausewitzian, I suppose. And uh, the two are completely incompatible. And uh, given that the reality is profound interdependence, transitioning to a more neoclausewitzian world is going to be very difficult. And we don't know how the speed of the transition to that world is going to map on to the capacity of states to come up with new sources of primary materials. The Australians are already working on rare earths. I think we are too. You know, it's not clear to me that there's more than a three-year gap. Yeah. 
And it's it's not the, the scarcity of the resources. It's just whether you're willing to tolerate the pollution and spend the, the yeah. capital. It's the uh, cost side of the production. Yeah, I think the problem for China, I, I don't usually think about the world from China's point of view, but they are neo-Koswitzian at heart, right? They believe that all of this stuff is a weapon, and they think that it's been used against them as a weapon. They, they're uniquely sensitive to that. They remember every single time in a uh, hundred years that it has worked out badly for them, and they don't they don't want to focus on how much they've gotten from the fragile trust that has created a global economy. So they're a likely defector from the fragile trust at any opportunity. And so for others who would be happier in that fragile global trust arrangement, it's just not particularly in our self-interest to continue to offer that trust to somebody who, who doesn't really intend to reciprocate it. I agree with you and think it's more complicated. I think there is, you know, to, to simplify quite a bit, there's a Beijing school and a Shanghai school. And, you know, there are lots of, of entrepreneurial business people who've succeeded magnificently. Then uh, I call that the Shanghai school, although that doesn't quite capture where they are. Let's say the Southern school yeah. uh, taken to Guangdong. And then we have the bureaucrats in Beijing. And if you, you teach in China, you see people sort themselves out in high school, high flyers as to which direction they're going. And both exist. So it's, it's not true that she has the capacity to totally commit the country to a neo-Clausewitzian world, although he's pushing as hard as he can and his levers of power are better developed than the Shanghai folks. The most they can do is sort of generate pain due to opportunity costs. Yeah. And when he sees that pain and that opportunity cost, uh, I'm sure that part of him says, yeah, you guys thought you could be a power yeah, center yeah. distinct from me, but you're learning that life just sucks when you're not close yeah. to Beijing. But Chinese history is about, you know, not getting into civil wars because they tend to be pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. It just it, it feels as though we're in a, a dynamic that is just going to produce more decoupling more of these little uh, and sometimes large dislocations. And so if you were planning an investment strategy for the next 20 years, you'd say, where is the West most dependent on China? And I'm going to invest in the places that could serve as competition to China in, uh, in those sectors. You're not wrong. All right. The Biden administration, this is a really interesting one because it's a a stealth, I guess I'll call it a con stealth conservative or maybe a Trumpist victory that you wouldn't have predicted. Usually stealth victories go to the people who are closest to the establishment. But in this case, Meta has pretty much announced that they no longer get any warnings from the federal government about foreign disinformation efforts to uh, influence the domestic political debate. And that's almost entirely due to Republicans and conservatives complaining about what happened, especially in 2020, under the heading of disinformation. And it turns out that a lot of the, the efforts to cut off discussion of, for example, the uh, election fraud issues was more fragile than thought. And now, unfortunately, as it has collapsed, what I would have said was a good thing, knowing when Russia and China are trying to influence our political debate, is going by the boards as well. Jane? Yeah, well, so it's funny. I, I kind of read this a little differently. I thought that the Facebook announcement was trying to sort of shame the the conservatives or the right for bringing cases like Missouri versus Yes, it, it clearly was. Showing this is the cost, you idiots, right? Yeah. And uh, I think there's even a quote from Mark Warner saying that that it is, you know, this is the result of legal warfare by far-right actors. And I'm not sure that Jay Bhattacharya counts as a far-right actor. But anyway, I, you know, I think this does raise good questions of how much type two error we're going to get, you know, fa false negatives we're going to get when we reduce the type one error, the false positives or the yeah. inappropriate positive, right? Now, so any change in the rule 
is going to change both good and bad warnings, and we have to expect that. I'm not sure it needs to be this dramatic, though, where there's complete silence from the administration. But I also, I do understand that they're probably chilled by things like the Fifth Circuit's uh, ruling. And, you know, I'm wondering from this, from the group of all you, Stuart and everyone else here, you know, do you think something like a public database that the government maintains giving examples would be valuable? Like, I don't know why all of this has to be so secretive and so direct, you know, having direct lines between the companies and the government. So I just wonder if there are ways of getting 90% of the value of those relationships without, you know, through some other means. I, I agree. There are any number of nuanced approaches to this that says, yeah, we should not have shut down people in Texas because they sounded like people in St. Petersburg. All right. That, that, was, that was wrong. That was dumb. And it was you know, uh, utilitarian on the part of people who wanted to influence the election, uh, that is to say the Democrats. And the government should not have fallen for that effort to, to make everybody who said something bad about the election into a Russian actor. And we can, we can distinguish between Russian actors and domestic actors. And in fact, the government is better at that probably in some cases than uh, social media. But nobody wants to go there. That's what's interesting. And, and I think it's maybe, you know, I think there's a distinct possibility that the court decision in this area is going to say something like what we just said. Uh, you know, there are some things that the government can encourage social media to do where foreign governments are trying to uh, meddle in our elections. But as I've been thinking about it, the reason we're not seeing more pushback and more of an effort to come up with a nuanced approach is there's no government agency that thinks that this is their core mission. And so they all got into it because it looked like it would make them popular. And now they've realized it won't. And so CISA can go back to doing cybersecurity and the FBI can go investigate criminals. And there isn't anybody who, who says, well, the whole point of my existence is to, to deal with this problem. And so there's nobody trying to keep it alive on the, we need to be able to say more about foreign meddling in our election. That's, that's my only answer. Oh, I'm, I'm surprised that there aren't, you know, there aren't groups within intelligence that are, have, have long been tasked with mis disinformation, you know, um, yeah, but they didn't interact so much with social media. They did, but there's nobody more risk averse about political, you know, domestic political travails than the intelligence community. So that, they're not going to. They're not going to go. There. I, mean, I mean, the other the other thing though is there might be reason to be kind of risk averse anyway, because I I still don't think we have great evidence that disinformation campaigns do much more than a small marginal impact on how and on actual voting behavior you know they certainly can can change the salience of certain things but even in the best you know the best run a b experiments that facebook itself does the types of experiments that get all the publicity about how people can be manipulated the actual effect sizes are always really small you know, it's just it's just hard to get people to change their minds, especially about controversial political topics. So yeah. um, if I could add just Paul, one quick thought, you know, speaking as an old Cold Warrior and how we dealt with Soviet disinformation back in the 60s and 70s, uh, sometimes shunning is a much better strategy than active re response. Sometimes yeah. what is shunning? shunning. It's shunning. ignoring it instead of drawing attention to it. OK. I kind of agree. And now let's let's just, just bang through four stories that, that we ought to get out. 702, just to keep bring everybody up to date, there is still one bill uh, to come. The judiciary on the House Judiciary Bill is likely to be a, a pretty tough bill and maybe not an acceptable bill from an intelligence collection point of view. But that's still still to come. We now, I think we're also waiting for the text of the uh, House intelligence bill. And we only have, you know, less than a month to get all of that passed and very few legislative days. So not surprisingly, people are talking about a temporary extension 
probably by attaching the extension to the National Defense Authorization Act, which has to pass. And soon we'll see that, you know, the people who don't like 702 are trying to make that a scandal. I doubt they'll succeed. So we could easily, easily see the deadline pushed off from the end of the year to something closer to the election, which will really be productive in terms of uh, lowering the temperature on this issue. Jane, Meta's, there's a story about Meta's effort to get pedophiles off of Facebook and Instagram. And the Wall Street Journal, which hates Meta, says, yeah, they're, they're completely failing. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I am, I am surprised that when the Wall Street Journal looks for things like teens only or young girls or something, that they do find these you know, Facebook groups that are for pedophiles who then presumably, you know, they, they share sort of suggestive content there and then presumably they have their... Yeah, the hardcore stuff is on a, on a yeah, hidden, on, hidden on forum. Yeah, end-to-end encrypted. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, which Meta is happy to provide in WhatsApp. Uh, so <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So I, I, I think, I mean, child pornography is a real and huge problem, but the the big thing we need to tackle is how to deal with the distribution networks, the end-to-end the -end encrypted uh, stuff. The, the other thing I just want to pull out, though, is that it tends to be advertisers that give Facebook the, the financial incentive to remove even the suggestive, you know, the inappropriate content. And so given that we spent so much time talking about advertising-based models versus subscription models, some of that goes away if we try to funnel everyone into a subscription model, because <laughs> then... Users get what they want and, you know, there's not a lot of complaining left over. Right. No, that's exactly right. Maury, uh, the EU has a proposal on Internet of Things vulnerability uh, reporting and the EU parliament is kind of saying, well, that's going to be really expensive, which is probably true. And it's going to mean stockpiling of vulnerabilities by evil uh, intelligence agencies, which almost certainly is not true. Do you, do you see this finally breaking free and getting adopted? I think it'll probably get adopted here. It's very broad. It covers products with digital elements and it has things like conformity assessment and vulnerability reporting. And you, know, Stuart, you don't like EU legislation often because it targets US companies. I don't like it because it targets EU companies and there's no great tech companies in the EU. And I think this is an example of more burdensome EU tech regulation. But this is going to, this is for sure going to make things that cost 10 cents cost a dollar. Yeah. So I think it'll get through. It'll probably be made more commercial, but the devil will be in the details and it'll probably be fairly regulatory. Okay. And the Canadian government and Google have finally reached a deal on uh, online news subsidies. The Facebook famously said, if you're going to make us pay the, uh, the media in Canada, we're just going to stop reporting news from Canada, and they've stuck to that. Google, which needs news reporting more as part of their search, has uh, finally gotten a deal where they can be negotiating with the entire industry once, and they've offered $100 million, and that's going to, you know, something like that is going to go to Canada. So that crisis is largely resolved. And just to update people on a couple of stories, Cruise, which everybody thought was one of the top two self-driving car companies has gone from bad to worse after their disastrous disclosures in California. They have suspended a lot of their uh, driving and now GM is radically cutting their investment. So we're not going to have a lot of crews self-driving anytime soon. Uh, and so it's one more black eye for AI, I fear. Joe Sullivan, who was convicted and sentenced for his failure to disclose a kind of quasi-breach in which Uber paid people what he called a bug bounty, but which most people thought was just hush money. He is now out. His sentence is, is basically done, and he is speaking out. And he's telling a story that I think is going to make other CISOs very worried, basically saying, you're doing exactly what I did. If I can be indicted for that, so can you. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but it may be closer to truth than most people would like. So if you're a CISO, you probably need to take a look at what he's saying because it's it's pretty scary from the point of view of folks who do security at companies. 
And then kind of most remarkable is the story of Hacking Team, which we've all been watching for years. It was one of the early European hackers for hire. They got doxxed and then they became the subject of a lot of unhappy government attention. And in the latest news, the founder of Hacking Team has been arrested for stabbing his cousin's wife. She looked like she came close to dying. He almost certainly was on a psychotic break. So the whole uh, hacking team story is going to make a great Andy Greenberg book someday, but it's certainly bad news for the founder. And that's it. Jane, Paul, Lori, thanks for joining us. For our listeners, please send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Give me your thoughts. I'm getting great thoughts from people. I really do appreciate it. As I've said, how should we change the podcast after episode 500? And there's a little bit of a groundswell for saying, you know, if you want to raise money instead of serving ads, why don't you do what Risky Business does and let people come on and get interviewed, you know, pay you to be interviewed for 10 minutes at the end. And then those of us who don't want to hear it will just skip it. And those of us who think that it's entertaining will uh, we'll give them an audience. So we'll see. That might work. I don't know if anybody would pay the, to have that conversation on this podcast. But if you would, be sure to let me know because that will uh, influence me. Thanks to everybody. This has been episode 484 of the Cyber Law Podcast. So I've ended up to the right of you on this. Yeah, there you go.